You are now entering the transit zone. It is beyond time that Australia had an energy policy in the national interest. That's why I've written to the Prime Minister and suggested we meet and agree on an energy investment framework that will deliver the modernisation of our energy system. Like industry and the experts, Labor is open-minded about the specific investment framework to be adopted. We can work with a national energy guarantee, a clean energy target, an emissions intensity scheme, or other models which deliver the essential component of providing that investment certainty. Welcome back to The Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston in Narang on the Gold Coast. And Tim Dunlop in Southbank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record this podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Agamba people of the Narang District. We pay respect to their elders. The big topics for debate this week here in coronavirus world are climate change, energy and the environment. As the federal opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, addressed the National Press Club this week, calling for some kind of truce around the decade-long energy and climate change wars in Australian politics. The instant, scornful boilerplate response from Coalition Energy Minister Angus Taylor seemed to put the mockers on that idea. So, our guest this time in the Transit Zone is George Woods, a veteran climate change activist and poet based in coal country in Newcastle in the Hunter region of New South Wales. She's New South Wales coordinator of Lock the Gate. George, welcome to the Transit Zone. Thank you very much for having me. George, as you know, we want to discuss many aspects of climate change and the environment with you, but please set the scene for us. Sure thing. Thanks, Peter. In some ways, the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic has really viscerally demonstrated the otherworldliness of the task of meeting the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. Annual greenhouse emissions globally are expected to fall about 8% this year. But to meet the Paris Agreement stretch goal of avoiding global warming of over one and a half degrees, that will need to be followed every year this decade by emissions cuts of a similar magnitude. On the reverse side, though, what's happened in the last few months has utterly refuted claims that rapid, large-scale public investment isn't possible as a climate change crisis response. The International Energy Agency last week said that this year is the global community's last chance to change course decisively and prevent catastrophic climate change. We had a taste of how profound that change of course needs to be and how much we need candour and compassion to deal with it in recent times. In Australia, though, we are saddled with business and political leaders that are either willfully ignorant of the scale and urgency of that challenge or who have decided that they are willing to sacrifice the safety, prosperity and well-being of generations to come for their short-term political and profit motives. I have been an environmental activist in Australia for two decades and been fighting the causes of climate change for most of that time. And when it comes to tackling climate change, there really isn't very much that I haven't tried. Research and reports and rallies and and rabble-rousing, high viz, high heels. I guess my reflection on it is if this was easy or if it was possible to do with the kind of cooperation between workers, environmentalists and capitalists that this country hasn't before really imagined, then I think it would have been done by now. So there are three big challenges for us. Australia. First, we've got to prepare coal mining communities for the economic shock of the declining market for coal that's expected over the next decade or two. That's work that takes a generation and we have really barely begun and remain mostly in denial about it. Second, we need to resist the push of the gas industry who are trying to lock the country into further fossil fuel dependence by expanding gas production and burning and exports. 
And finally, we need to prepare our infrastructure, life support systems and our public life for the disruption and turmoil of climate change because the chaos of this year of 2020 is not an anomaly. It's setting the scene for the coming century. And I guess the question is, will Australians descend into conflict and tribalism as that chaos settles in? Or can we forge new cooperation and understanding and social bonds? Unfortunately, in all three of those tasks, we have a national government that is actively obstructing us. And so the need for community-led cooperation and action against the will of the state has, I don't think, ever been more pressing. George, I sort of went into shock, horror, and then I wonder what this is all about with Albanese's so-called pivot yesterday, saying yes to the fantasy of carbon storage and I'll give up on the neg. Has what he's done changed everything or nothing? I suppose from my perspective, I don't think it changes anything at all. You know, I remember that Shorten did try a similar thing. You know, he appealed to the Liberal National Coalition to put aside conflict and work together on climate change. And he was similarly rebuffed. And I guess I have a fair degree of frustration. I mean, I'm not a Labor Party person, but it seems to me that in Australian public life, it's always the Labor Party that's expected to kind of carry the weight of climate policy that's effective, but also fair you know, but also economically responsible. And no one else is really kind of put on the spot in that way. You know, the Greens can do their thing, the Liberal Party's National Party, Business Council, you know, everybody can kind of be there, play their role and not kind of take that trouble to find the really complex solution. And somehow it's always Labor that needs to answer for the complexity of this issue, even though nobody else seems to really, you know, willing to take up that challenge. It seemed to me that the Albanese move was a sign of terrible weakness, that that if they are carrying the whole load of mainstream climate change policy, they've folded, they've given up. Do you sort of agree with that? And whether you do or not, what next in mainstream politics to get something happening? Well, I mean, I suppose it is a political weakness, but in all honesty, it's what anybody who really cares very deeply about climate change is doing right now. The time for kind of drawing hard lines and saying it has to be my way or the highway is so far beyond us and the impacts of climate change are starting to have feedbacks and spiral into really quite frightening territory and so anyone, everyone who understands the scale of the problem is looking around to make new agreements and what can I do to change this dynamic because it's just so anti-life to keep on acting this way. So I mean I guess it's just got to be taken out of the political arena. That's my view. I mean, it's, I just don't think we can expect politics to be in the forefront of this. It does need to be something that society does. I did watch the Albanese address to the National Press Club all the way through. He was trying to frame it as reinstating science front and centre. That was his overarching theme. He cited Ben Chifley setting up CSIRO and then expressed his deep regrets about the gutting of CSIRO. It was science and innovation and technology. Yes, they did talk about coal capture. They did declare that they were agnostic about all the various models. He did all that in the National Press Club. Then, of course, Angus Taylor, the Coalition Energy Minister, stepped up and just did the usual, same old, same old, talked about electricity prices and did exactly what you said, George, put it back onto Labor. That was the political tactic. So when you look at that, the recalcitrance, how do you actually perceive that recalcitrance within the coalition? Well, it's shifted really in the last five or maybe 10 years from being a sort of a a passive non-activity into an active resistance of changes that are actually underway anyway. The investment community is moving its money. You know, people are doing different things. There's action on climate change in lots of places and 
what's happened you know, in the National and Liberal parties is that they're, they're now sort of in this position of they're trying to thwart what little movement and activity there is. It's really gutting, but it is just an indication to me that we just can't keep on fixating on the political sphere as the location of activity and, and solution here. We have to just leave them out of it and sideline them and make things happen amongst ourselves, you know, between unions and environmentalists and people with money make the change happen. I mean, you see the Business Council, for example, running around going, oh, we need leadership from the government. It's like, well, you represent the companies that produce most of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. So why don't you just go out and do it? We don't have to have a political thing. If you think this is important, then get on and do it. Tim, when I saw that article today in The Guardian about 11,000 renewable jobs, I thought of you straight away with all your work that you've done in research on employment and jobs futures, etc. How did that strike you? It's such an interesting area. George's point about having the proper transition. I think our focus has to be on the people and not on jobs per se. I'm talking in general in how we approach this. And I think this is what throws me about the current government. Again, as George said, there's just this weird ideological bent to do things in a very particular way that's often actually at odds with their own goals. You know, not being haven't really... they just been bought by the miners? Isn't it that simple? Well, yeah, probably. But um... I mean, the National Party is not a party of farmers anymore; it's a party of miners. I wouldn't disagree with that. Again, it seems like a counterproductive thing. The bigger point about jobs, and I think it's true not just in the areas that we're talking about here, but with the whole recent decisions around higher education and not funding arts sorts of areas, is again, you know, just such an own goal in the sense of setting us up for the future that's coming. Those sorts of skills across a whole range of areas where employment is likely to be those soft skills, so to speak, are vitally important. And the idea that any government would actively put barriers in the way of people acquiring those skills is just kind of insane. So, you know, whatever the basis of their ideological blockade is, whether it's just the influence of mining companies or whatever, it's really detrimental to the country. And that's what really struck me with with the figures that Peter was talking about. George, can I ask this question? This is from someone who's been around a lot of remote Australia, largely Western Australia, Western Queensland, Northern Queensland. What did we see almost every step of the way on stations in small towns? We saw solar panels everywhere. A lot of the people out in their troopies like we've got and out in their four-wheel drives, what have they got? Solar panels everywhere. I'm just wondering how you parse all that, the uptake of uh, solar in Australia, the obvious reception of various forms of renewables, people are now doing the batteries, all that technology is there. How do you analyse all the little blocks and inhibitions within all that big picture? Well, I don't think the public really has that much inhibition about renewable energy. I mean, if there are important discussions to have about renewable energy being implemented in this country in a way that doesn't repeat the mistakes of the mining industry and other big industries, that doesn't dispossess Aboriginal people and take away their right to have a say over country that doesn't clear important bushland and, and habitats. You know, the renewable industry has, has a really poor current track record on working conditions and, and labour practices. So that's the discussion to have. But in terms of whether or not renewable energy is what is necessary, there really isn't a discussion to be had. I don't read what the government, the, the, the Commonwealth government is doing as ideological or political in, in the sort of ideas sense. I just think 
that party is populated by a group of people who are interested in power and interested in wealth and really we misunderstand them if we think that they care about what happens in the future. They're very, very focused on the present and minor advantages that they can get for themselves by completely sacrificing things that matter a great deal to the rest of the population, they seem to be very willing to do. How do you come to that view, though? What's your evidence for that, I suppose? That's just your personal analysis after a long time in the biz? Well, yeah, I suppose so. It's just that the way they behave is so at odds with public sentiment in most of these regards. I mean, people, you know, we forget is that people really value bushland and they value clean water and they value intact landscapes. They value community decision making and, and, you know, distributed power and distributed models of democracy and the social fabric of rural communities. And then these are all things that they're not contentious. What I see the government doing is really acting in spite of all of that against the grain of public life. And they're able to do it, I think, because the structure of politics has a lot to do with it. People are getting into politics simply to serve these ends. You know, it, it, it has become a, an arena that is being drained of idealism and cooperative ideals. Can I throw in a just a little thought here? I mean, having covered politics over many, many years now, liberalism, smaller liberalism has gradually died and the party has been taken over by the hard right, both socially and economically. You've seen over the years more and more that that smaller liberal seats, which are wealthy seats, which are city inner city seats, have moved. And, and at the last election, I mean, here you've got rich people faced with the Labor government going to steal their franking credits. They still moved hard to Labor. As you know, I've got the Independence Day project, very much a, a Turnbull liberalism type thing. But that's one of the interesting things about the party is that they're even prepared to sacrifice the rich seats to turn away the rich seats to keep their ideology. And as you say, there's a lot of people with money in those seats and they've put a lot of money into trying to do something on climate change. I mean, Zali Stegall got two million bucks in Manly to roll all over Abbott. So I suppose a little bit unlike you, I haven't completely given up on politics, but I think it's up to the community to rise and find great independence and back them in hard. To be fair, I would I would probably have to qualify here that I never really see saw politics as an arena that was capable of delivering the sorts of um, <laughs> sorts of things that I, that I'm interested in. But I think I think that whole question of liberalism I think is a bit tainted, to be honest, because it's sort of bound up in in the Enlightenment project and the sort of the whole project of our civilization, our Anglo way of life, which assumes the exploitation of fossil fuels, ex- assumes the exploitation of natural resources and there's an unwillingness to come to terms with that, which I think has provided the opportunity for that sort of hard right descent, you know, that kind of um, troublemaking out of this world, I'm going to pull all of this down, chaos factor, which, you know, I think is partly driven by a failure of our mainstream society to come to terms with its inherent contradictions. I mean, give Turnbull a break. I mean, he lost his leadership twice trying to do something on climate change. I mean, you know, sorry to defend the centre. I'll, I'll back off now. <laughs> George, having travelled around Australia, I guess I was shocked on our first big trip going across country on which hooves had been virtually everywhere. So it's not only the Industrial Revolution or the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, it's all that pastoralism as well, that assumption in our personal history in Australia, that everything's infinite, that you can just let the sheep go, you can let the cattle go, you can dig up the earth. And we're seeing more recently, of course, with Rio Tinto and and BHP blowing up uh, 
Indigenous sacred site in Western Australia, that assumption, those vast red lands in Western Australia are just infinite, that that is still very much in our psyche, don't you think? Certainly. And I think Australia is particularly, uh, you know, vulnerable to this sort of failure because we have this sort of goldfish public life where we forget everything and we never think of the future. And I think that's partly out of shame that we forget everything. It is a feature of Australian, of the Australian kind of way to not plan 100 years, you know, in advance, which is not really the way I think the Europeans approach these things. You know, they have forest management systems that kind of have these sort of half a millennium timescales. And people in Australia talk as if 10 years is is infinity, you know, and so the inability to kind of conceptualise what, you know, the ancient culture, you know, in Western Australia means to people is, I think, partly our our sort of conceptual failure to understand time and consequences. The other thing, too, is that I have actually seen the Badlands. I remember driving into Broome and we looked out the window and said, oh, look at that land, utterly destroyed, salt-laden, dead Badlands. And I hadn't seen that before, and I guess most urban citizens of Australia haven't seen it either. It's an act of the imagination. You're in the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark with Margot Kingston, Tim Dunlop, and our guest George Woods, a climate change activist and New South Wales coordinator of Lock the Gate. Let's now move to a more specific case study through the words of environmental defender and activist Rosemary Vass. Rosemary grew up near Baradine in the western side of the remarkable Pilligan Forest, not so far from the northwestern New South Wales town of Canamble, where I just happened to spend about a year of my life working. She knows in her bones about water as a precious resource and the great artesian basin too. After travelling a lot and working in capital cities as well, she finished her career as assistant principal at the Coonabarabran Primary School. In retirement, Rosemary's become an ardent activist, especially working against prospective Santos gas mining in the Pelican Forest. She has sent the Transit Zone this audio postcard from Coonabarabran. I'm Rosemary Vass and I live 70 kilometres south of the proposed Santos gas project in the Pilliga Forest. Like much of the northwest region, there's a PEL or Petroleum Exploration Licence over our property. This PEL adjoins the Santos site where they propose to drill 850 coal seam gas wells. For the last seven years, I have belonged to the Northwest Alliance, which opposes the project. During the COVID crisis, there was much hope that having listened to the science on coronavirus, governments might look to build back better, putting fossil fuels, including gas, behind us and move to a climate-protecting, renewable future, as the best science advises. The New South Wales Chief Scientists made 16 recommendations to reduce the risks of CSG extraction, but only two have been implemented. Surely now, having learnt the lessons of COVID-19, and acting against the risk, the New South Wales government would act similarly with CSG. We were shattered instead to find the federal government had formed a gas industry stacked COVID commission and surprise, surprise, they were recommending a gas-led recovery. The New South Wales government has moved to fast track these developments. They have moved quickly to a 12-week independent planning commission process to determine the Narrabri outcome. The COVID restrictions will severely limit and change the response our alliance can make. Local groups had planned submission writing meetings for the community. This is now limited due to restrictions. Instead of gathering hundreds of our supporters in Narrabri to fill the hall and galvanise the individuals and experts who would address the IPC panel in open forum, 
The whole process is to occur digitally. This poses enormous problems and challenges for us. Many people have technology access problems with poor internet, scratchy landlines, and often no reliable mobile service. The Northwest Alliance is diverse, but many of us are older and not technology savvy. We will find it daunting to present our submissions via technology. We've lost the opportunity to create media events because of the restrictions. It feels unfair and unjust when so much depends on the outcome. Rosemary Vass from Coonabara Brand near the Pilliga Forest in Western New South Wales. George, perhaps the first thing we should do, having heard Rosemary, is just describe the Pilliga Forest. I also suspect, I talked about the Badlands, I don't think people know about the Pilliga Forest much either. It's a unique chunk of land. It's about 5,000 square kilometres. It's a really, really large temperate woodland. It purported to be the, the largest temperate woodland in eastern Australia. And yeah, it's it basically suspended between Narrabri in the east, Baradine in the west and Coonabarabran in the south. And it's very, it's very flat in lots of areas, but there are sort of outcrops and, and ridges and sacred sandstone caves, you know, for the Gomoroi people. It's a, it's a very important landscape for Gomoroi people and a real refuge for wildlife in, you know, what is a heavily cleared landscape. It was made famous, if you haven't read it, by um, Eric Rolls um, in A Million Wild Acres. And there's lots of, uh, lots of contest about its, its meaning, to be honest, about, you know, whether it is a forest or whether it's regenerated from grassland. And, but it means a lot to the people of northwest New South Wales. Jurassic sandstone, beautiful stuff. I went to the the Pilliga Pottery for the you know the yearly spring gathering of activists to try and stop Santos's plans for massive fracking throughout the Pilliga and you were very optimistic you thought that you had them on the back foot and the, the big struggle might might almost be over but enter coronavirus world enter the commission for the future a mining company front really and all of a sudden, Morrison and co want gas, gas, gas. They want to rip away red tape. Where are we at now? Has coronavirus will change the equation to save the pilliga? Well, I think that coronavirus has intensified a dynamic that was already in play where the Commonwealth just seemed quite relentlessly uh, and a little bafflingly to be forcing this project um, on the people of New South Wales. It, you know, it has come up a lot in the last few years, um, you know, as a sort of a, a project of a special interest for the Commonwealth, which is really confusing because it's not that big a gas field compared to the Queensland ones. And, um, you know, the gas is quite expensive and it's intriguing how much the, the Commonwealth wants that gas field to proceed. But they have set up this COVID coordination commission and populated it with people with a direct and indirect interest in this. I mean, Energy Australia, who have a representative on that commission, are a joint venture partner in the Pilliga gas field and the Wilga Park gas power station, which currently burns gas from the Pilliga, drawn out by Santos there. So... A few weeks ago, there was this front page story of the Daily Telegraph saying, oh, you know, Neville Power, the COVID Coordination Commission chair, this is among our top priorities, this project to have a sort of fertiliser factory in this little town in northwest New South Wales. There's something going on. I don't know what it is, but the Commonwealth... Money, money, really money. Want, they really want to force this gas field on, on the population. But I guess part of my optimism was based in the people of the northwest from like Dubbo up to Moree, out to Walgett, even as far east as Armadale, see the Pilliga as the foothold that the coal seam gas industry wants to get in their region and have been fighting it tooth and nail for a decade. As you, as you mentioned, Rosemary is one of those people and 
the way that those people have tenaciously continued battling to protect that forest is an extraordinary thing to behold. And we are, uh, as she said, now just coming up to the really crunch moment um, where it will be decided by the Independent Planning Commission. And fortunately, it's not a decision that gets made by politicians. It's in the hands of the Commission. So we do have a shot at an independent decision being made. There's a lot of interests riding on it. George, I've been talking to a lot of mainly city-based activists over the last few weeks or even months, and they're in a reasonable amount of despair at the moment about their inability to be able to go out and speak to people because of COVID, you know, just doing normal door knocking and that sort of stuff. There's really no substitute for face-to-face interaction if you want to change people, is there? I think it's very important. Um, and I think, you know, the, the challenge of, of COVID-19 has been that much of the sort of participation in public life is curtailed, not just door knocking. It's not just big mass rallies, but it's, you know, just holding a film screening. It's parliament, having questions asked in parliament. It's even the media. Like, I'm sure you're going to do a program about the terrible media landscape for Australia. And in regional New South Wales, it's really, really hard to tell stories and to, and to get the word out about what's happening. So, Yeah, the COVID crisis has inhibited people's ability to do that work. But at the same time, there's a lot of innovation happening and there's people just using what they've got and getting on with it. You've been doing this for a long time. What does success look like? Do you think about what you're doing in terms of the short and the medium term? Do you set goals or is it just one day at a time? How how do you think about it? I guess I'd answer that question differently as George or lock the gate. George, George. (laughs) Look, I think I have shifted away from having an idea of things as reaching some sort of success into seeing activism as really qualitative. It's the good that you do that makes the difference. And the sustaining of right action over a number of years in a number of places is what I think is really important. And we have lost a great many battles and are going backwards in a lot of of really fundamental ways. But I think that you need to kind of see activism really as as an ongoing struggle. It's never over. There's always work to do to conserve what is beautiful and valuable you know, and to fight the forces of greed, I suppose. It's a very essential way to describe it. In the context of climate change, unfortunately, unlike other sort of social struggles like the struggle between labour and capital, it's a situation where you do reach a point where things become catastrophically, you know, irreversibly out of your control. It's not generally kind of understood that climate change, the nature of it is like that, that we're kind of approaching a point where this situation is irreversible and is going to get much, much worse and we can't sort of ameliorate it in any meaningful way. I was just reading a a Wendell Berry essay about um, the naivety of thinking that protest achieves things and actually sustaining protest is about trying to stop something of your own spirit from dying that would die if you acquiesced. But I've never really been much into this idea of hope. There's a very good essay long ago by uh, environmentalist Derek Jensen called Beyond Hope about how When you fight for beautiful and very precious things like the biodiversity of this planet, you're not really doing it because you think it's going to be okay. You're doing it out of love. He used an analogy of someone that you love, you know, falling off a jetty and struggling in the water. And you don't dive in to go to them because you think you're going to get there. You do it as an act of love. And even if you know that you're not going to get there, you still undertake that action as an act of love. And I've, I've always felt that to be a, 
a more sustainable motivation for activism than a kind of a need to, to believe that somehow you will attain some goal that you're after. Very few people are willing to jump into the river for love, I think. So how, how do you speak to those people and convince them of the importance of this? There are people who, you know, who have a tendency and a, and a character that, you know, makes them think about things in these abstract big picture terms, big scale terms. But for most people, it's much more about their home, the land they love, the community they love. You know, that's why I have been with Lock the Gate for all these years, because unlike, you know, many other organisations, Lock the Gate is very regional. Most of our people are based in the regions and it is a very place-based activism and it, it brings people together based on things that, that mean a lot to them. So they do jump in the river. You know, they're not going to jump in the river so that China changes its energy trajectory, but they'll jump in the river for the Pilliga sandstone. You know, they'll jump into the river for for that forest, you know, for a koala, for their little local school that's going to close down if the mine goes ahead. You need to respect people, to be honest. Like, I think there's a lot of in government and and in sort of chatterati circles, you know, there's a lot of disdain and contempt shown to ordinary people that I think is very counterproductive and that when you talk to people about what matters to them, you find that the things that matter to them are at risk from climate change, are at risk from the mining industry. You can find that heart dialogue that way. George, with the decline of journalism, as you alluded to a little while back, media, news, we're seeing the the shredding of the ABC as we speak here today in the transit zone. We're pretty much immersed in propaganda, very tribalised propaganda now too. Look at the United States, what's happening there, but also here in Australia. I'm intrigued too, following up on Tim's question about how all of us come from different directions, perhaps heading towards a similar destination. Some of us are really interested in endangered species and habitat, using the overarching idea of the web of life to guide us. That's our guiding star. Others are more concerned with... Yes, the more abstract idea of the environment, emissions, greenhouse gases, etc. Everybody comes at it in a slightly different way. Is that one of your central challenges as an activist, an environmental activist, with a particular focus on energy, I suppose? It's very pluralistic. How do you deal with that? I don't see that pluralism as a challenge, to be honest. I think it is the great strength disguised by the tribalism that has kind of emerged in Australian public life. Pluralism is a, is a really important feature of a strong network of activism that is able to confront these challenges. And it's because people come at it from different motivations and with different experiences that the Lock the Gate Network has been able to be so successful in confronting the mining industry and, and protecting precious places from it. I talked about the propaganda and, of course, one of the big aspects of propaganda, particularly coming from the coalition, but also from the Labor Party, is jobs, jobs, jobs. We've got the Matt Canavan shtick, the Adani deceptions, when they talk about that inflated figure for the Adani mine, the thousands of jobs, which on analysis proves to be completely untrue. But of course, you're in Newcastle, which is quite ironic having this discussion with us today, the Fitzgibbon factor and the coal factor and jobs, jobs, jobs. What's your take on all that and the propaganda surrounding it, using jobs as the big carrot when we're talking about mining of all kinds, whether it's in the Pilliga Forest, fracking, coal, etc.? It's not ironic that I'm saying this from Newcastle. I mean, I'm shaped by having grown up in Newcastle all my life, living in the world's biggest coal port, this industrial city and its history of activism. And, you know, the process of neoliberalism in making people's lives so precarious 
that they're terrified to lose their jobs and they don't know if they'll be able to get another one is part of this story. And the sort of disjunct between the environmental movement and the trade union movement over these resource projects, I think is a, you know, is a distraction for us from our core agreement that we want meaningful lives and vocations and a sustainable environment. And I've been talking to a lot of unionists lately about that and about how we can bury this lie that jobs and the environment are opposed to each other. But I do get very frustrated by environmentalists who are casually dismissive of the important role that the, the mining industry, the coal industry particularly, plays in my region, but also in, you know, in our whole society. Like, we have abandoned the territory of being able to talk about that pride and that legacy and people's skills and the huge sacrifices that miners have made over the last hundred years for the general prosperity of everybody in our community. I mean, that is not something that I think that we should be dismissing and belittling. And yes, right now we have this terrible challenge that we need to stop burning coal for power or we're going to ruin our future. We made a terrible error, I think, in allowing multinational coal mining companies to occupy that territory of pride and that territory of heritage for mining communities like here in the Hunter and to make people feel that they were being made to be ashamed for their livelihood, which they had previously felt quite proud about, about the role that coal plays in, in fueling our whole um, economy. So the mining industry does tend to sort of overstate its contribution and it's also true that the workforce in the mining industry is highly casualised now and, and they are very precarious and they, they worry about mines closing and they fight, they fight for every new project. So it's, it's really tough territory. It's one of those contradictions that I think, as I was saying, that we need to kind of be really candid about unearthing. Joel Fitzgibbon, you know, for example, did nearly lose his seat when I saw that One Nation vote on election night, I was actually sitting in a studio of the Newcastle Herald waiting to do a, a live interview and I saw it pop off on their screen and I had a little shock reaction. But of course, it makes a lot of sense. And I think the sense that it makes is this, that the Labor Party felt unable to be candid with the mining communities of the Hunter about what the global changes about energy were going to mean for our region. One Nation didn't shy away from that. They went out and said there's a risk to the mining industry from all of this renewable stuff and all of this climate stuff and the way we're going to deal with that risk is we're going to promise you that we'll build a new power station. We're going to promise you that we'll, you know, build new mines. And everybody in the Hunter knows that the, that the industry is precarious now and that, and that there is a really uncertain future. And the Labor Party is not going to be able to just brush that aside and say, we don't need to talk about the future of the mining and export industry because it's, it's something that people in this region talk about all the time. Tim, of course, mining is no longer labour intensive, is it? I've seen the automated GPS guided trucks in the big mines in Western Australia and elsewhere. Automation, AI, robotics is clearly part of the future of mining. Oh, without a doubt, it's part of the present of mining. It's increasingly becoming part of many industries and I don't think we've got our heads around that at all. The people in those regions and in those industries are very aware of the precarious nature of it, not just in terms of the employment, but the future of the industry. But they will vote for the party that promises them to extend that industry rather than transition to the new industry, which is what the sort of the vote in Newcastle, Joel Fitzgibbon's electorate 
indicates. There's obviously a disconnect there. Is it just short-term versus long-term or what, what is it? It does seem contradictory. You can work in the mining industry in the Hunter and get a six-figure salary without much qualification. And there are young people, you know, at Singleton High School and, and Singleton Council puts on careers expos, show the young people, you know, their options, and they just go, I'm just going to go and, you know, work in the mines. And But it's actually acting, you know, in a, in a really obstructive way in the labour market because other things can't get going because they can't get the labour because there's just this extremely attractive option um, mm. for the, you know, for people to go and, and work. And I think this divide, you know, in, in those working communities where there is this uh, um, aspirational class, I think they were calling it, you know, and, and Joel Fitzgibbon is very aware of that. I read his post-election remarks in this um, mining industry funded newspaper in the Hunter called Coalface. And he was basically saying, actually, it wasn't about coal mining and climate change, the reason why they didn't vote for me the reason why they moved away from labour, it was because of negative gearing. Mm. Because miners understand that they're only getting these high salaries for a short period of time and their financial plan is to buy investment properties, you know, and set themselves up with their pile. I mean, those are not his words, but that was the import of what he was saying. It makes me think of the guy sitting in the front of the train with three kilometres of iron ore behind him in Western Australia on those long railways there. He gets about $250,000 a year. Now, of course, that's transferring to a, to a young bloke in a Perth office with a joystick driving the train. Obviously, that salary is being lost for different reasons from what you described, but we're seeing a combination of automation and robots and, and of course, the decline of the industries themselves. It's very complex, isn't it? It is complex, and I guess I would just say that for, for I'm not a miner, <laughs> but... You know, there's a trade-off, right? Because it's a very antisocial industry in the sense that they're working 24 hours a day. It's shift work. You know, there's a lot that they sacrifice that that salary, you know, kind of trades off for them. And so I yeah. think that other industries do have things to offer to miners, a, a different kind of quality of life, you know, that is part of the diversification strategy in the Hunter. The best we can do is, is continue to nurture that dialogue to say what are the other things of value that we could create for people um, so they don't feel they have to cling to money because they're afraid of what they're going to lose. When I travelled around with Hanson in 1998, right, it's post-competition policy and I found that um, there's no phones, there's no banks, there's no jobs, the whole thing's desolate and it was because they didn't do the second phase of competition policy which was serious money and effort into transition it struck me during the election, it's the same thing, like what you were talking about before, the abstract thing, we've got to do something of climate change. The centre of our renewable energy push will be in those towns that suffer. You you will have the new jobs and the new training, sort of like what happened with, um, you know, in Newcastle, which, which managed a, a pretty amazing transition after BHP closed the steel mill. What work's being done on the ground in, in terms of getting everyone together and working on a, a transition strategy? We're returning back to the beginning, which is great because I do think that government is not the one, you know, not the leading role in this. And there's a lot of discussion and work being done in the Hunter about diversification. The missing, the gap is that these discussions need to open their doors and let people in because all our reading about coal communities in decline and, you know, it happens to mining communities, it's a common dynamic, is that you need to put measures in place before the decline happens and you need to have local leadership and you need to have general acceptance throughout the community that these measures are needed. Um, And 
we need to shed the illusion that governments care about people. Unfortunately, we just keep on electing these these characters in the political class who are not in it for the lofty ideals that we thought politics was supposed to be about. What Lock the Gate's been doing is sort of holding big community dinners and, you know, doing workshops that talk to people about the future for the hunter and, and what their vision is to make it real. And that's that's where I think it's at. Lots of people have been very willing to talk about the electricity industry and how it's going to transition. Um, but for us here, 85, 90% of the coal that's mined in the hunter is for export. And that's where the, the big numbers um, of employment is. So in the meantime, you know, there are mines still expanding in the Hunter and there's a wholly new mine in the Gunnedah Basin called Vickery that I'm going to a public hearing for next week. So what is wrong in Australia that we are distracted from substance for culture wars? I mean, it's not only climate change, I know, but what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong in our, in our mainstream political debate that we just enjoy punching each other on the, the ephemera and, and not take into account the substance. I mean, I don't disagree with the people who say that the the Murdoch media empire has a great deal to answer for in exploiting division and, and argument um, in a way that kind of entrenches conflict and doesn't actually contribute much to public life. But I don't I think that's the only thing that's been going on. I mean, I think in, in Australia we do we do have a very profound city-country divide and a lot of the, the really important things that are happening in the regions are off the radar because of our very high urban population and everybody clinging to the coastal fringe. We have a really great paper here in Newcastle, but the ABC network has really suffered. It's very difficult to get... Newcastle's story, let alone Narrabri's story, told in the media in Sydney. And that is a huge part of it because there's just simply this blind spot for Sydney audiences about the very serious environmental and social challenges that are going on in regional New South Wales. George, stay with us. We're going to just share, as we always do in the transit zone, what we've been reading, listening to, watching on TV, in the cinema. Tim, what have you been checking out this week? Um, I've kind of cleared the decks and put everything on hold because I heard that there's uh, a new book from Elena Ferranti coming out shortly. She wrote the four-part series, often called the Neapolitan Novels, the first one being My Brilliant Friend, greatest books ever written, I think. (laughs) Well, maybe not. Maybe um, George Eliot would have something to say about that. Sensational novels, and it's very exciting news that a new one's on the way. So I'm I'm just holding off till that arrives. George, as a poet, I just wonder if you are completely consumed by nonfiction reading and utilitarian reading, or can you get time in your busy activist life to read fiction, poetry, etc. as well? What have you been reading? I, at the moment, am reading a fantastic epic poem by the Melbourne anarchist poet Pi O called Heidi. (laughs) It's the third of a trilogy of epic poems by Pi O and it's basically an art history of Australia since colonialism written as as an epic poem, as a book-length poem, overlaid with the sort of radical politics of, you know, the labour movement and uh, all the stuff that was going on in Australia in the 30s and 50s. And uh, I haven't yet finished it, but I am absolutely loving it and highly recommend it. Margot. As you know, I'm I'm sort of still into the meaning of life and, you know, how to cope with life after mum <laughs> and, and leaving my home. And I think I'm the last person in the world to have heard of a guy called Khalil Gibran, one of the best-selling um, 
poets of all time. And um, so I've just I've discovered Audible as well very late. So um, I've started listening to The Prophet. I've been watching a series on NITV. It's Carla Grant Presents, a series of Indigenous documentaries. I watched one the other night called Our Law, which was about a small, very remote West Australian police station, the only one in Australia, believe it or not, with Indigenous-only police. It was a very good doco, and I've been checking out the rest of this series. There are a lot of them there available for us to watch. They're all terrific, so I would really recommend people spend a bit of time with those. But, of course, we're having this discussion today here in Victoria, Tim and Margot. A little bit of exponential spread of the COVID showing up, Tim, I think it's fair to say. The military are coming to town to help with the quarantine. In my personal opinion, I think... Daniel Andrews, our Premier, was a bit spooked by the political sniping from the local Liberal Party opposition and the federal opposition, that insistence by Scott Morrison that the schools be reopened. I think that was a mistake. And I think he missed out on communicating more effectively to the migrant community, families, etc., who are now involved in the spread of COVID a little more. So I'm a little bit scared today, Tim and Margot and George, to be honest. We're locked down here in our house in home detention. We haven't been out. We're seeing another unfolding. I don't know if you call it the second wave or just a an upsurge of the first wave. I don't know what's going on. But it, how do you feel, Tim? You're here in Melbourne with us. I don't feel too bad. I understand your circumstances are, are different to mine. This was probably inevitable that there would be mm. some new cases. We, we haven't eradicated it. There isn't a vaccine. So it still seems very manageable to me. What did I see the other day that Florida's recording 4,000 new cases a day or something insane. So, you know, in that sort of context, it doesn't seem too bad. But I can understand your concern. It's something that we're going to have to keep a close eye on. I understand what you're saying too about perspective. Let's just reflect on this bit of data. Three democracies or so-called democracies, the United States, Brazil and the United Kingdom. Between them, they currently account for 45% of global Mm. coronavirus deaths. Let's remember the United States has 25% of global corona deaths with 4.5% of the world population. There's a bit of data for you to put the whole thing in some Mm. sort of crazy perspective. It's crazy, isn't it? And of course, those three countries each has a demagogue so-called leading them. So shall we draw some conclusions from that? I'll leave it with you. George, terrific to have you in the transit zone today. Wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been great fun. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Tim. Thank you, Margot. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Our guest this week in the transit zone, George Woods, a climate change activist based in Newcastle. She's also New South Wales coordinator of Lock the Gate. As I'm sure you know, you can follow this podcast on Twitter at Transit Zone Pod, at Transit Zone Pod. That's our Twitter handle. Now, these podcasts are searchable and you can subscribe at Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you have any comments on this or any of our podcasts, questions you would like asked or coronavirus world topics for all of us to explore right here in Transit Zone, please email us at transitzonepod at gmail.com. You can send us brief audio postcards too. If you are or have been working from home during the COVID-19 crisis, we're preparing some podcasts on this topic. So send your thoughts, your experiences, your analyses to transitzonepod at gmail.com. We really want to hear from you. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. For the Transit Zone team, Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston, thanks for being with us. And we'll catch you next time right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit transit zone. zone.